0: Before he became a philosopher, Massimo Piliucci was a biologist. He grew up in Rome and then earned a Ph.D. in evolutionary biology in the U.S. He was on a path that many scientists take, and he got a job at the University of Tennessee where he researched the interaction between genes and the environment.
1: Well, nature and nurture is what biologists call you know gene-environment interactions, and that right. was my field of uh, specialty, although I was working on plants, not, on, not in humans.
2: Massimo spent much of his time studying interactions between genes and the environment, but he also started working with Jonathan Kaplan, a philosophy professor at the University of Tennessee.
0: Some of the complex interactions between genes and environment that he studied didn't always mesh perfectly with traditional theories about evolution, and he wanted to understand why.
2: His partnership with Kaplan eventually turned Massimo into a full-time philosopher. Now he works in the philosophy department at the City University of New York, and he spends a lot of time thinking about the ideas that underpin biology.
1: And now mm-hmm. when you start talking about conceptual stuff in evolutionary biology or in science in general, then you're really not that far from, a, from, from philosophy of science.
2: Both as a biologist and a philosopher, Massimo has been a strong advocate for a major update to the foundations of evolutionary biology. Things like natural selection and genetic inheritance.
0: Those ideas form the backbone of modern evolutionary biology, but they haven't really been updated in about half a century. Massimo says scientists have discovered all kinds of things over the last several decades that warrant a revision of this backbone.
2: Other scientists totally disagree. They see these new discoveries as frosting on top of an otherwise perfectly good cake. They certainly add a new flavor, but they don't change the recipe. A cake is a cake, frosting or not.
0: In this episode, we talk with Massimo about why he thinks beaver dams, semi-aquatic plants, and the connections in our brains challenge the foundations of biology.
2: We'll also talk about why other scientists don't see it that way. They say Massimo's examples fit well into our current understanding of biology.
0: I'm Art Woods.
2: And I'm Marty Martin. Welcome to Big Biology. The way most evolutionary biologists think about the world is based on just a few big ideas.
0: Charles Darwin and Alfred Russell Wallace are credited with the theory of evolution by natural selection. Living things have a variety of traits, and the organisms with the best traits for their habitats tend to be the ones that survive and pass them on. Over millennia, the species change.
2: The Czech monk, Gregor Mendel, added the key thing Darwin and Wallace didn't know, the rules governing the inheritance of traits, which he learned by breeding pea plants. It wasn't until much later that we learned that what he was describing largely depends on the differences in DNA among individuals.
0: In the 1930s and 40s scientists combined the ideas of Darwin, Wallace, and Mendel. They called this new theory the modern synthesis. The modern synthesis basically goes like this. Individual organisms have different traits like blue eyes or curly hair.
2: Those differences are partly related to the differences in their genes. As long as organisms can pass on those differences in the DNA then the modern synthesis is pretty good at predicting the course of evolution. That's why scientists have relied on it for the last 90 years.
1: Um, That has been the model that has been taught. It's still taught in most, most graduate level courses today.
2: In the modern synthesis, though, the path from differences in DNA to differences in real traits was kind of like a black box. Scientists like to use black boxes to represent some complex thing, a kind of machine that transforms one thing into another thing.
0: For the evolutionary biology black box, on one side you have a bunch of genes, and on the other side you have a bunch of traits that you know are related somehow to those
2: genes. The black box is basically the pathway that leads from the variety of genes we see to the variety of traits like eye color and height, and also behaviors like personality and intelligence.
0: The modern synthesis argued essentially that the goings-on inside the black box didn't really affect what came out of it. Random mutations would tweak some of the genes, and somehow that reliably led to new traits. It didn't really matter to evolution how this happened, only that it did.
2: Massimo says this theory explains the natural world pretty well.
0: But he argues that it doesn't tell the whole story. And more importantly, as we've started to figure out what's inside the black box, we've learned that the machine inside it could influence the course of evolution after all.
1: Yeah, and a certain number of people felt is, is beginning, beginning to feel that, like, okay, well, all this stuff really doesn't fit into the modern synthesis. We need some kind of expansion.
0: He argues that the pathway from genes to traits isn't that straightforward. Sure, natural selection by the environment eliminates traits that don't match local conditions. But if Massimo and others are correct, the environment also affects what happens inside the box. And this could affect the outcome of evolution.
2: That's really a big part of why Massimo thinks we should expand the modern synthesis, the backbone of biology, since the 1950s. So
1: there is, there is a little bit of a split right now in evolutionary biology. There is a number of colleagues who are uh, perfectly, perfectly happy with what is called the modern synthesis. But over decades, really, uh, people started making sort of grumbling noises about the fact that the modern synthesis wasn't wrong as much as it was a little too limited.
0: The proponents of modern synthesis say that it's interesting to find out what's in the black box, but it doesn't change in any fundamental way how evolution works. Scientists like Massimo say that what goes on inside the black box changes what comes out, but he stops short of calling it a new theory. This is not a
1: paradigm shift. Uh, this is not a, a new theory or a rejection. Of Darwinism is uh, a significant expansion of what we had before.
2: Okay, so let's talk about a few of the things Massimo says should make us rethink evolution. According to the modern synthesis, genes have a lot of control over our physical traits, and we tend to think of them as blueprints.
0: Massimo thinks we give genes too much power, though. He says it's better to think of them like instructions for how cells and organisms interact with the world around them. Think about the neurons in your brain.
1: There's billions of neurons in your brain and they're all interconnected to a bunch of other neurons. So that means billions and billions and billions of connections. If your genes had to specify the exact location of those interconnections in, your, in the adult human brain, your gene, genome would have to be orders of magnitude larger than it is. Mm. This is a simple calculation. <laughs> you, can, you, you, can, you can figure it out, okay? it's not. We know this for a fact.
0: What this means is that most of our genes don't specify traits directly. Rather, they tell ourselves how to interact with the environment. It's the genes and the environment that determine how the neurons
2: connect. The instructions are important, no question. But how the instructions get executed depends fundamentally on the environment that they're in. The instructions and the environment are bound up with one another.
0: And that's true for almost everything that genes do. They have lots of important information, but without an environment to interact with, they really can't do anything. Massimo puts a finer point on it.
1: Because genes by themselves don't do (laughs) crap.
2: Normally, we think that changes in physical traits start with genetic mutations. Mutations change our genes, and then those genes affect evolution when they lead to new traits.
0: But Massimo says there are times when the environment can cause changes in traits that get passed on to future generations. As an example, he talks about a certain plant that can survive both under and above water.
1: And these plants typically have developed two different kinds of leaves, one underwater and another one above water. These leaves are anatomically different, they look different, they're physiologically different as well. And so below water does one thing, above water does another thing.
2: These plants all have the same genes. The catch is that living underwater induces the genes to make one set of traits, and on dry land, the environment induces a different set.
0: That's something that scientists call plasticity. It's when organisms use the same genes to develop different traits depending on the environment that they find themselves in.
2: During droughts, when water levels are low, plants take forms that allow them to survive on land. The leaves are smaller, openings in the leaves allow less water to get out, and they develop thicker, waxier cuticles. All of that protects the plants from drying out.
0: If there's a year with lots of rainfall and a lake covers those plants, they develop into another form that allows them to survive better underwater. But what if someone builds a dam and permanently floods the area where the plants live?
1: the plant is already it's basically pre-adapted to either one of these two environments because it's already capable of living in those in those environments except that instead of doing it uh, temporarily, it does it permanently
2: if the plants are underwater they get pushed into making underwater leaves
1: uh and then over that gives time to the population to survive basically instead of being eliminated immediately it hangs around for a little bit and the longer it hangs around the longer the, the more likely it is that there will be in fact beneficial mutations that are going to be selected and further fine-tuned and stabilized uh, things.
0: That's a pretty different scenario than the modern synthesis would have us believe. Genes don't always cause evolution to happen. Sometimes genes might be followers in evolution. Plasticity allows mutations to arise to fit the organism better to its environment.
1: Look, sometimes what happens is that the first step in evolution is not the appearance of a mutation, but rather an environmental change. And those members of the population that are pre-adapted, at least in part, even at a suboptimal level, to the new environment, shift to the new environment.
2: In the modern synthesis, the script is usually that genetic change happens first. Mutations allow some lucky organism to survive environmental change in the future.
0: In Massimo's example, the environment changed first and induced the plants to take on the underwater form. The plant's plasticity, its ability to survive above and below the water with the same genes, allowed genetic changes to show up later and refine the fit of the leaves to the underwater habitat.
1: But even if it's only occasional, uh, the thing is, this is a major departure from standard evolutionary theory because you have an evolutionary change that does not that is non-initiated by way of a mutation. Um, does, that, is that amount, does that amount to a rejection of Darwinism and all that sort of stuff? No, <laughs> it just means that, guess what? There is one more mechanism by which, uh, you know, living species can adapt to novel environment.
2: It all goes back to that black box. The modern synthesis only allowed the environment to decide which traits got passed on after they were out of the box. But Massimo's view is that the environment also plays a big role in what comes out of the black box in the first place. That might seem like a subtle difference, but what it does is dramatically alter the importance of genes in evolutionary theory. This framework means that the environment has two roles, and often it will be as important as the genes.
0: of time on the inside of the black box here, but Massimo thinks about the outside of the box too, and those thoughts go way beyond what the modern synthesis emphasized. He says that the environment itself can also be a form of inheritance that affects evolution.
2: For example, beavers construct dams that last for generations, and those dams change the type of vegetation that grows nearby. That provides a steady source of beaver food in winters and even places to hide from predators.
0: Because dams last much longer than the beavers live, young beavers inherit their parents' dams and all of the altered habitat around them. In other words, beaver parents pass on much more than just their genes. They also pass on an entire environment that they help to build.
1: Organisms don't inherit just their genes, obviously they do, but they inherit important components of their environment. So uh, it's particularly the one that they have constructed. And so they don't start from scratch every
2: generation. These created environments then become the setting in which evolution happens.
0: Massimo is saying that sometimes the products from the black box permanently change the environment. And what that means is that the next time the black box spits something out, that thing also experiences that different environment. That's important because it's a way that living things can inherit something besides genes. Beavers inherit dams from their parents, and that has an effect on whether or not they survive. The same goes for termites or bees or anything else, really, that builds its own environment, including we humans that write books and build internets. Both of these ideas, which biologists call plasticity and niche construction, take genes off the pedestal where we often put them. Too often, we think of genes as master controllers, a kind of blueprint for life, uber causative agents.
2: Massimo never means to question the importance of genes, they're no doubt really important. But they don't do everything by themselves. They need an environment to interact with, whether that environment is a flooded pond, a dam, or even a beaver muscle cell and the hormones and nutrients and other DNA floating around in the cytoplasm. Uh,
1: Without that cytoplasm, the genes don't do crap again, because by (laughs) themselves, they don't do anything, right? So you need that cytoplasm because you need nutrients, you need enzymes, you need need proteins, you need stuff that actually makes the metabolism work and reproduces, you know, opens up the DNA, replicates it, etc., etc., etc. Without that, you don't get an organism. Nothing, Nothing gets started. You just have a bunch of DNA that stays there and does nothing.
2: Massimo made a strong case that plasticity and niche construction should motivate us all to rethink how evolution works. And if you want to hear more from him, check out our full conversation. It's available wherever you got this podcast, and you can also hear it on our website, www.bigbiology.org.
0: If you think Massimo is way off base, we'd also like to hear from you. You can reach out to us on the same website or through Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter.
2: While you're there, please consider making a donation. We need your support to keep the wheels turning. So if you like us, please send a few dollars our way.
0: Thanks to Matt Blois for editing and production help. The rest of the Big Biology team includes Gerard Sapes, who edits our scripts to make sure they don't sound like academic papers. Haley Hansen handles Big Biology's social media channels. Steve Lane and Romain Boisseau manage our website. Music on today's episode is from Poddington Bear and Daniel Birch.